So I was reflecting as the sitting started about this bell. And this bell actually came to this community as a gift from a friend of mine, a woman whose name was Nicola Geiger. And Nicola died um, (coughs) about three years ago. And um, she lived a most remarkable life. She was born into a Buddhist family in pre-Hitler Germany. So there weren't exactly a lot of Buddhist families in (laughs) pre-Hitler Germany. And one of the things that happened for her as an infant, apparently very shortly after she was born, her father took her and kind of propped her up on on a zafu, on one of these cushions, you know, as her first meditating. Mm -hmm. And then through her childhood, um, they knew people like Hermann Hesse and folks like that that we only just read about. And she learned a bit about Buddhist practice. And then, of course, the war came. Um, Her father died, actually, in a, a kind of a tragic accident just before the war started. And she got quite involved in the resistance. And um, she lost a husband and a child in that war. And then went ultimately to England. um, And then came over here where she married again, married a physicist, and had a couple of kids. And continued to do her Buddhist practice and also got very involved in the Quaker world. It's possible that some of you knew her there because she was very involved in the local meeting. But the Buddhist thread just kept following all the way through. And then after some time, as their kids were older, she and her husband went to Japan and he had a very difficult time there because as a physicist he had been involved in the development of the atom bomb. And so he found that when he got to Japan he was just consumed with guilt and sadness and grief and in the end he committed suicide and um, she ended up here in Santa Cruz having studied with, like, as while she was in Japan with some really wonderful Buddhist teachers and um, so the Buddhist thread just followed all the way through and I was thinking about her tonight because um, there was that sense that she'd really found something and that whatever it was that she'd found in her Buddhist practice was this incredibly valuable thing that really saw her through these very, very difficult times. And she was one of those people, I've hung out a bit in the Quaker and Buddhist world, and the the interface between the Quakers and the Buddhists is pretty close, you know, so people go back and forth pretty easily. So I think the treasure that she found in her Buddhist practice, she also found in her Quaker practice. And I had wanted to talk tonight about, it's actually another one of these lists, and it talks about the treasures of our practice. And I was just thinking how, how wonderful it is to begin to see that there's something in these teachings that provides such sustenance that it is an enormous treasure. And then I was looking around at this, you know, and here we are in this center that has been created out of the generosity of so many people, mostly because 
we got excited that we'd found something. We'd found this treasure in the practice and we wanted to create a home where it could be taught and where people could come to practice even more. So, so it's, I think it's helpful to begin to look at our practice that way. It's because I know for me when sometimes I'm practicing along and the days are going by and you know the sitting time comes and it feels a little like a chore and you got to do it because you said you'd do it or you go to the meeting or the class or whatever it is and there's that kind of oh, one more thing to do mentality which is not helpful to practice it's not I mean who wants it you know and it's just it's like scrubbing <coughs> toilets and if you get out of it you get you can you do if you possibly can but when it's a treasure then that's different you know because you come because it's it's such an important thing to anchor ourselves in silence or to hear the the words of the buddha again so here's the sutta that talks about this i'm not going to read the whole thing but i'll read um, some bits of it. So the Buddha is teaching and he says there are, there are seven treasures and he says it's the treasure of conviction or faith, of virtue, of conscience, of concern, of listening. I thought that was quite wonderful. Listening. Of generosity and of discernment. And so then he goes on to describe each one and so, says you know that um, how each one is Important. Whoever, man or woman, has these treasures, so whoever has these treasures is said not to be poor, not, has not lived in vain. So conviction and virtue, confidence and dharma vision should be cultivated by the wise, remembering the Buddha's instruction. So I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday, somebody who had grown up if I remember rightly, in the Catholic world. And um, this person was talking about how difficult this notion of faith is. You know, I don't know about faith, you know, it's that sense of it being all about believing. And, and I love it that so often now in contemporary translations of Buddhist texts, it's talk, it's not, the word faith isn't used, so we kind of move away from a word that's difficult for us, and they use the word conviction. Mm-hmm. which is, in some senses, a much stronger word for us, that sense where you are absolutely convinced. And, and it comes in different flavors. Sometimes there's a place where our conviction, we're convinced and it's new and it's bright and we're excited and we're finding it for the first time. And, and then after a while, we come to trust it a little more and we follow it a little more steadily. And then in the end, conviction is just that. It's a knowing. It's that very deep, deep knowing that what the Buddha taught actually works. Sometimes I'm annoyed that it works, but it works, you know, and and when you pay attention, it's actually very helpful. And, And so, you know, you may have conviction about the nature of our experience, that it's never very satisfactory and that it's and we find, we were talking in the committed students group the other night about how it's not personal, that place where, where <coughs> we so often see what happens to us as being personal. And that we come to understand that no matter what our experience is, 
there's some possibility of freedom in any given moment. You know, that place where, where no matter what's happening to you, no matter how difficult it is, you can stand in it in a way in which that you are free. And as we practice that and come to know it, we really know it. You know, you know it right in the in your gut. Um, and so often I've heard from people. I think if there's one phrase I hear, you know, I do. I often do interviews with people. People say, you know, will you sit down with me and talk about your, my practice? You should know that this is true. I'm happy to do this. And the phrase that comes over and over again is they're telling me about some situation, some difficulty that's happened in their lives, their illness or their job situation or their difficult marriage, and they say, I don't know how I would get through this if it weren't for the practice. I think that sentence happens so often. And that's, that's a sentence of conviction. That's that place where you really come to know that the practice actually works. Many times at the ends of retreats, I learned this from Jack Cornfield. I think he still does it. I do it. There's an exercise that we do, and probably many of you have done it, where you, you, know, you imagine yourself in that difficult situation, and then um, you hear a knock at the door, and it's the Buddha or some other enlightened being of your choice. And the Buddha says, let me just have your body for a minute, you know. I'll go into that difficult situation and do it for you. And so you imagine that, you know, the Buddha walks into the difficult situation looking like you, and then you get to watch to see how the Buddha would do it. How would the Buddha be in your job or with your partner or with your adolescent kid who's acting out? And of course the Buddha often pretty cool, you know. He does it in a way that's quite interesting and sometimes a little different. And then the question always comes, well, where did the where did that Buddha come from in you? How? And of course then you go, oh, it's there. You know, there's that place where there's that innate wisdom that that we begin to know is there and that we can trust. So then the second thing on this list is the treasure, and again, I really love it that it's treasure, of your own virtue. That your willingness to live in a way that is ethical and non-harming is a treasure. It's an enormous gift to all of the beings around you and to this planet that you are willing to not kill, to not take that which isn't given to you, to be careful with your sexuality so that you're not harming anyone, to be really careful with your speech so that you're not harming anyone or yourself in any of these cases, and that you're not intoxicating your body or your mind. That Those are, are really <coughs> powerful gifts to <coughs> every being on this planet. And it's really worth considering you know, what would it be to know that there isn't any creature that has to worry about your being in their presence? Wouldn't it be wonderful? And of course, the, the part of the wonderfulness is that it comes back then as a gift to you the, of knowing that you are <coughs> non-harming. 
And then the third of these treasures kind of goes with that. It's that place where we have a conscience. And it's interesting. Um, in Buddhist practice, there's a concept of shame that's a little different from how we hold it in the West. And it's that place where we know we could do better. So it's not shame in the sense of being bad or dirty or less than the way we've sometimes held it. And maybe shame is not even really a, a good a good word. We need to find another translation. But it's that place where it's helpful, where you realize, oh, I could I could do that a little better. I could be a little kinder or I could speak a little more carefully. Um, and it's a place I think where really remembering that what we're doing is a training is useful because then you know if you're training if you're at the gym or you're in your Pilates class or your yoga class you know I love it I'm in yoga and I'm doing something and my instructor comes and he stands there and he kind of looks at me you know like this I'm thinking uh, 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 what's he going to say and then often he says something like why don't you take the muscles on the left side of your abdomen and pull them up a little bit? And I usually have to think about it for a minute because that feels kind of complicated. But it's a way of pointing out to me that I can do something better, right? And so in our practice, when we hold it as a training, then sometimes people point out to us, sometimes they're your partner or your, you know, the members of your community or sometimes even your children, who say, you know, you could do that a little better. And it's so easy to sort of want to pull the covers up over our head and go away. But really, what the, the place where it's useful is where you can go, oh, I could see that I could do it a little better. And then you set about learning how to do it a little better, which sometimes takes some time. But it's actually um, a really useful place in practice. So it's helpful, I think, to kind of take a look at, you know, where are the places that we could, you know, how about your carbon footprint? That's that's a fun one to look at these days. Could we be doing, I'm getting on an airplane tomorrow morning, you know, my carbon footprint is looking a little big at the present moment. So what could I do to make that better? Or what about my recycling habits? Or what about how I am in meetings and that kind of thing, you know, are there places, where are the places that you can do things better, that I can do things better? Another of these treasures is cultivating concern. And, um, again, this is one of those places that we don't think about too often, as, as this is something really wonderful to have, that place where we have some concern for the suffering of others and where we look at our community and our world and we go, oh, what could we do better? You know, how can we help? I have a friend I talked to today who got the letter from Barack Obama on the night of the election saying, yay, we did it, you know, I'll be in touch. And so she decided to write back. I don't know, maybe some of you did this. I thought it was a very cool idea. She wrote back and she said, congratulations, I'm so happy we did it, yay, yay. What can I do to help? And you know what? She got a response, 
with a whole list of things for how they're going to be reaching out to people so that they can help, so that you can take your concern and put it to work. Now, this is very exciting, actually, and it's exciting to consider that that's, that's, a, that's a gift, again, that we have that, that serves us and serves the planet when we have that kind of concern. What can we do to make it better? You know, can, we, can we help? And then the sixth of those treasures is the treasure of listening. Isn't that wonderful? The treasure of listening. We don't remember that so often. We want people, I want people to listen to me. That's easy, you know. But also to understand that my ability to listen is a treasure, that I can really cultivate that, not only with the people around me, but of course, you know what else you get to listen to? You get to listen to the teachings. And that's, that's an amazing teaching and practice, to hear the teachings, whether you hear them in a talk, or whether you hear them when you're reading a book, or whether you're listening to your favorite you know, tape or CD, um, or something that you've downloaded, that um, that's often how we take in the teachings. And... Of course, that's how they were designed to be taken in, is that it's an oral tradition. So, you know, that um, as we contemplate that stack of books, you know, the endless mm-hmm. pile of Dharma books that stacks up wherever it is that yours stack up, um, I mean, in a sense, it's a problem, but in another sense, that's the treasure right there that you get to listen to. One of the things about listening, I think, is that um, you'll hear the same thing over and over again. My friend Sylvia Borstein says she thinks she gives the same Dharma talk every time. And, you know, it's tweaked a little bit differently. It's got a different story or a different theme. But in the end, it's the same Dharma talk. And I'm not sure I completely agree with her, but I think maybe there, you know, each of us who teach has maybe 10 Dharma talks or 12, and that's about it. And we're saying the same things over and over again. And I know when I've sat retreats as a student, I'm thinking, I sat with Ajahn Sumedho last June, and halfway through the retreat, I thought, he's giving the same talk every night, and every morning, too, actually, as it turned out. And I got a little impatient. And I thought, why? Why Why doesn't he do something different? But you know, it was really wonderful, because by the end of the retreat, I felt... Like something had gotten so into my body, I could never lose it. And it was as though, you know that that wonderful experiment that you do with iron filings when they're just kind of scattered around, and then you bring the magnet closer and closer and closer and closer, and all of a sudden there's that magic point when all the filings move because they're, they're energized by the magnetism, and they create some kind of a pattern. And so I think sometimes hearing things over and over again is like that. You know, you hear it over and over again, and then it just hits whatever your magic point is, and everything shifts. 
and you get it in a way that you never got whatever it was, impermanence or the nature of suffering or, or something of that sort. And then you continue to hear, because, you know, the, the, it isn't like once you, that happens, then whoever's talking starts giving a different Dharma talk. They just keep giving on the same teachings over and over again. And trust me, the Buddha did the same thing. If you read the suttas, you begin to realize he basically gave the same teachings over and over again. And so you listen to them some more, over and over again, and then there comes that point when it shifts again. It's very interesting. So that listening, that place of listening, is such an incredible and wonderful treasure. So then the the sixth on the list is the treasure of generosity. And so we all know that generosity is one of the most basic of practices. You have opportunity to practice generosity here, you know, offer making donations to the teachers or the teachings and offering to the to the center itself to help keeping it going and and you offer things to other groups in the world and to your family and friends. That place where where Giving is such an enormously important part of the practice. And the greatest of the gifts, actually, is the gift of the Dharma, as that's understood to be. And so it's interesting because we don't often respond to an invitation for generosity as though it's a treasure for ourselves. You know? And some time ago, I got a phone call, one of those phone solicitations that I somehow got sucked into listening to. Mm-hmm. And it was from the ACLU. And I was trying, I'm standing there listening, it's the ACLU, so I'm kind of inclined to listen, but I want to be polite and thinking I'm probably going to say no. And, <coughs> and then this person said, well... You know, if you'll make a monthly donation, you can be a guardian of liberty. Wow. You know, like, guardian of liberty. Wow, that's cool. You know, and and it, it I actually went ahead and did it. And because I began to see that there was a place where my generosity also then brought this wonderful gift to me at the same time of that sense that I was actually helping to protect something that I really deeply thought was true. It doesn't have to be the ACLU, it might be something else for you, but that that way in which um, our generosity is a gift out and it's also a gift in, that it's, it's both at the same time. And then, last of all, the last treasure is that of wisdom itself. And, um, you know, in some ways, um, we don't need to say too much about that. I mean, when, when some wisdom arises and we see things more clearly, it's fairly easy to understand that um, it, it is indeed a treasure. One of the translations that's often used, again, for wisdom is discernment. So it's that place of seeing things more clearly and really understanding what's needed in any given situation and understanding the at deeper and deeper levels the nature of our being here. So, you know, if you go back to that exercise that Jack likes to do at the end of retreats about being the Buddha, I mean, that actually is an exercise in wisdom. You know, that 
we can do that at any given moment. We can imagine, okay, what what is needed? What is the wisest, most skillful, most compassionate thing that I can do in this very moment? And um, there is, there exists in the archives of retreat literature this wonderful letter from a student who lived in a very remote area where there weren't a lot of Buddhists and she'd come and she had a long retreat and then she went back to wherever it was rural you know, rural America or Canada or someplace like that and um, she wrote a letter to her teachers talking about what her experience was like after the retreat and that you know, it was difficult being having been to this very intense long, several month long um, retreat and then going back to this place where there weren't any Buddhists at all and people didn't know much about it and she said, you know, they like me much better and get much more out of what I'm saying when I'm a Buddha than when I'm a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. So that that place of, of really um, living out of the teachings of the Buddha So one more story. It's actually a Sufi story. And um, in this story, there's a man who's in prison. And he really wants to get out. The sense in the story is that he's imprisoned unjustly. And um, so he's hoping that one of his friends will come and in some way rescue him. So one day, one of his friends that he really thought might be able to be useful showed up, and he had rolled up under his arm a prayer rug, which he gave, the friend gave to the prisoner. And the prisoner didn't unroll it while his friend was there because he thought surely the key is probably rolled up you know, in the rug. So after his friend left, he... You know, got to be time for the evening prayers and he rolled the rug out so that he could do his prayers facing toward Mecca completely expecting that there would be a key in the rug and there was nothing there it was just a prayer rug he was very disappointed but it was a nice prayer rug you know, handsome, good looking and so he thought well you know, might as well use it so he said his prayers and he rolled it up and then you know, for many weeks after that, five times a day, he unrolled the prayer rug, he did his prayers, and he bowed down. Of course, every time you bow down, you get up right close and personal to the rug. And at some point, he realized that there was actually some code woven into the rug. And so when he began to work with that and to decipher it, he discovered that it was the instructions for how to get out of the prison. So, you know, it's a lovely story because it's right there in the practice. It wasn't until he had practiced enough that he could find the code that would let him out. So I think wisdom is often like that, you know. It's not something that comes immediately and sometimes it requires that repeated work and then that as we repeat the practice, as we sit over and over again, as we read the Dharma books, as we listen to the talks, as we go on the retreats, then slowly, slowly, the wisdom emerges and 
it is indeed um, the treasure of liberation, really. So I think that's a good place to stop. So I'll see if there's any questions or comments um, from what I've said. Or not. Clear? I'd like to hear maybe some other people or you talk more about faith and belief. And somebody like take a big jump there over a conviction. It's a different word in Buddhism. It's sometimes translated as faith, but because in our Western spiritual traditions, faith sometimes is held to be the same as as a belief. So a belief, I would understand, as not necessarily um, is not necessarily based on my own personal experience. So. Um, for example one that's in the Buddhist world is the belief in rebirth right and some people have experiences which they trust and allow them to really think that that is so but some people haven't had those experiences and then it's, it's a bigger jump for them so that's a belief and the way the Sadha, the Buddhist word for faith, actually means that which is grounded in your own experience. So that's where it hooks into conviction. Does that help? My oldest brother is a um, calling about Christian. Uh huh. And in my mind, his conviction, his faith, I think that yeah. yeah yeah well you probably we could probably say that that might I don't know if he's a fundamentalist or not but fundamentalists of pretty much any flavor whether they're Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim or Christian often have a more narrow window that is very belief based and doesn't allow them to see a bigger picture and doesn't allow them to have their own experience and the, the Buddhist understanding of faith is not that so it's that's it, tricky because we've got the same words that we're using but we're really talking about a very different experience yeah so um, if the Buddha says clinging creates suffering your invitation the invitation to you is to go home and check it out and if you can find a place where clinging or attachment brings liberation we'd be delighted to hear about it because I think there are a whole bunch of folks who keep hoping that it will but you know that's that place where damn the Buddha was right one more time you know and but but the invitation is always to check it out for yourself so it is one of the places where Buddhism is, is quite different, actually, from some of the other faith traditions. Play with it a little. 
Michelle. Um, well, I would just like to share an experience, um, I guess, speaking to faith or, or verified faith is the way I like uh-huh. to describe it. Um, you know, the, the, the whole uh, Buddhist practice is about ending suffering and, you know, um, finding happiness. And, uh, well, how do we know if that really works? Um, so, my experience uh, a little over two years ago uh, uh, with my my brother's passing, um, it was it was a very difficult experience. Needless to say, you know, I was with him and my family for the week before he died, and then up to two weeks after after he died, we were all together, and. I know, had I not been, had I not had this practice, had I not had this, these skills to, to ground me and, and carry me through that, it would have been, I, I would have really suffered um, going through that. But having this practice, um, it while it was still difficult and I, I, I grieved, um, it was at the same time a very beautiful experience. Um, on the other hand, my sister, who was also a, a, a devout Christian and um, mildly fundamentalist, <laughs> I'm not sure if I would classify her as that, but her experience of it was very different, and her suffering went on mm. and on and on for a very long time. Mm. Um, much longer, I think, than anyone else in our family, even our our mother. Um, it's hard to tell. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that that's that's been my verification mm-hmm. that the practice works. Yeah. That it that 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 gives me faith. That verified faith. All one way to say this is that all of the teachings of the Buddha are structures for the investigation of your own heart and mind. That that's structures for the investigation of your own heart and mind. That's why how they're offered is in that spirit. So it's always see for yourself, check it out, try it. If it's helpful, use it. If it's not helpful set it aside sometimes certainly there are teachings that I've heard that I've thought I don't get it but then at some later point I hear them again and I go oh now I understand so you know but um, there's not any place where you are required to believe anything that you don't know to be true for yourself John you had something I just wanted to add it the Buddha said point one don't believe anything that I said Right. Because I'm a Buddha and I say, yes, this is true. Find out for yourself. So there is no belief in that. The, actually, the image he gave was to, of testing a coin. And in those days, if a coin was gold and you bit it, then it would have teeth marks because gold is soft. And if there were no teeth marks, then it wasn't gold. And so he actually said, you know, bite into every teaching. So, <laughs> Axel, yes. Oh. <clears throat> I always like the Buddhist thing to the same kind of faith that you have that the sun's going to rise tomorrow again. Yeah. It does every day because you've seen it rise and it's the same thing that when you yeah. sit down and meditate and watch your 
moods, you realize that your moods change like the weather, but you can't really see that until you sit and watch it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Lyle, you had something in the middle? Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I think sometimes there's, um, you hear different things in Buddhism. I mean, I, I love, it totally feels to me that, you know, see for yourself. I like that because I don't like being told what to think, you know. <laughs> but um, but then I think there's some Buddhist traditions in which there's such a cultural overlay. There is a little more of that, sure. this is the way. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, Buddhist traditions, Buddhist groups, probably even here, some we've looked hard enough. All right, let me make a couple of announcements and then we'll be done. Um, in order of appearance, the beginner's class, class is happening on Wednesday evenings at 6.30, Basics of Buddhist Practice. You'd be welcome still to come and Jill and Bruce Hyman are teaching it. There's little green flyers over there. Um, on a week from this weekend, so a week from tomorrow night, um, Donald Rothberg is giving a talk here at the center at 7 o'clock uh, on developing equanimity and fearlessness in a time of change, turmoil, and fear. So if the economy is getting to you, you know, the Dow is up today and down tomorrow and who knows, um, or you're worried about your job and you would like some equanimity and fearlessness, maybe this is the talk for you. And then he's doing two day-longs on Saturday and Sunday. Um, One is on inquiry and investigation in our practice, and the other one is working with um, conflict. And Donald's a great teacher. He's one of the Spirit Rock teachers. He's done a lot of work with Engaged Buddhist Practice and the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. So the flyers are over there, and we certainly would welcome you. And you're welcome to come to any or all of those things, you know, mix and match. There's no requirement to do the whole thing. And just way ahead to mention that we will be having another one of our Buddhist Teachers series, Buddhist Teachers in Santa Cruz series, on December 5th with Jaku Kinst and Shinsu Roberts, who are two, Zen, Zen, two women Zen teachers. We have an astounding number of women teachers here in Santa Cruz. So they'll be coming on Friday evening, December 5th. And then even further ahead is our annual potluck on December 18th. So save the night because the food is always good. Okay, any other announcements that I might have missed? Anything? If not, let's end with just a little bit of loving kindness practice. So sit in a way that's quite comfortable. If you're comfortable as you are, just stay there. Take a breath or two and settle back into your body.